All right, we are back. We're still talking about public relations and public perceptions. Let's do a little bit of more, a little bit more of that. USA Today magazine, that bastion of left-wing thinking, last February in reviewing a book about public relations, that a group that often derides PR professionals is journalists who see themselves as truth seekers, forced to deal with flax in order to get information. Yet the newspaper noted that without the PR industry, there would be little news. A 2008 study of news stories in UK newspapers found that more than half contained mostly public relations material. A study in the Columbia Journalism Review found that more than half the stories in an edition of the Wall Street Journal were based solely on press releases. And yet I hear people tell me that they read the Wall Street Journal and they think it's great. We don't read the Wall Street Journal and we have our doubts. They know the Labor Department estimates that 240,000 people work in the PR industry in the USA. Article notes that PR often involves countering the effect of bad publicity. Remember all those shots of guys with high-pressure hoses after the Exxon Valdez went aground up in Alaska? Well, it turned out that steam washing and high-pressure hoses had no positive environmental effect in the cleanup. But you know, it looked on TV like they're doing something. And yes, one of the main things they do is sow doubt. Remember all those quotes from the Tobacco Institute every time a study showed that smoking was bad? In a review in New Scientist magazine from June of this year, two books were examined which showed how big corporations have made an industry out of casting doubt on research critical of their products, noting that it's not going to stop until we cut the purse strings. Review by Merrill Guzner said, Real science depends on the dispassionate search for truth. Quoting sociologist Robert Merton, To claim the mantle of scientist, a researcher must be divorced from preconceived bias or monetary gain, and the work should be subject to the rigorous scrutiny of a community of peers. But it was noted that by the time Merton articulated those ideas, the tobacco industry had already set in motion a pseudoscientific strategy that threatened to undermine them. Big Tobacco's advance guard created a non-profit institute, hired scientists, and commissioned papers with a single purpose in mind, to cast doubt on what would soon become a flood of evidence proving that smoking kills. And it worked. Public campaigns to combat smoking were delayed for decades. Regulation was forestalled. And in a 1966 memo, a tobacco industry official let the cat out of the bag. Doubt is our product since it is the best means of competing with the body of facts that exists in the minds of the general public. It is also the means of establishing a controversy. One of the book's reviews was David Michael's Doubt is Their Product, which referred to various campaigns against certain chemicals, explaining that companies often operating through nonprofit research institutes set up by themselves or by a trade association, hired scientists skilled in the arts of toxicology, epidemiology, and risk assessment to poke holes in any research suggesting that exposure to these chemicals could cause disease or death. Anyway, this explains why people would doubt that high fructose corn syrup could cause any problems. And we should mention, as we must do on each show, and this might be a good time, that the opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regions of the University of California. But dang, don't you think they should? Well, we think so, but, but they may not. But again, we have to return back to George Lakoff's idea that, you know, it's how people think. You can influence people's thinking 
by keeping in mind how the brain puts data together. In a similar vein, there's a new book out called Spent by Jeffrey Miller, which asks the question, why do we buy what we buy and why do we buy so much of it? The author explains about advertising that marketers understand that they are selling the sizzle, not the steak. In analyzing this, the author notes that you got to take a look at human biology and evolutionary theory to understand uh, the whys behind advertising success. But we have to note, sadly, that if the product is the truth, uh, there, doesn't, there don't appear to be a lot of people out there uh, purveying it. Cite another opinion piece from New Scientist magazine from the July 25th issue, which noted that climate change is a scientific fact, but that is not enough to make people care. Like it or not, said George Marshall, in the opinion piece, we've got to work on people's beliefs. Noted Marshall, it's now 44 years since U.S. President Lyndon Johnson's Scientific Advisory Council warned that our greenhouse gas emissions could generate, quote, marked changes in climate, unquote. Noting that's 44 years of research costing by one estimate $3 billion a year, symposia, conferences, documentaries, articles, and now 80 million references on the internet. Despite all this information, opinion polls over the year have shown that 40% of the people in the UK and over 50% in the US resolutely refuse to accept that our emissions are changing the climate. And scarcely 10% of Britons regard climate change as a major problem. Said Marshall, I do not accept that this continued rejection of the science is a reflection of media distortion or scientific illiteracy. Rather, I see it as proof of our society's failure to construct a shared belief in climate change. And in conjunction, noted Vic, Vicky Pope, head of the Met Office Hadley Center for Climate Change in Exeter, UK, writing in The Guardian, that word belief is used in full knowledge that climate scientists dislike it saying, quote, we are increasingly asked whether we believe in climate change. Quite simply, it is not a matter of belief. Our concerns about climate change arise from the scientific evidence. For his part, Marshall said, I could not disagree more. People's attitudes toward climate change, even popes, are belief systems constructed through social interactions within peer groups. People then select the storylines that accord best with their personal world view. In Pope's case, and in my own, this is a worldview that respects scientists and empirical evidence. But listen to what others say. Most regard climate change as an unsettled technical issue, still hotly debated by eggheads. Many reject personal responsibility by shifting blame elsewhere. The rich, the poor, the Americans, the Chinese, or they suspect the issue is a Trojan horse built by hair-shirted environmentalists who want to spoil their fun. And as it turns out, this is pretty much the same point that George Lakoff makes in The Political Mind. It's how you frame the question and how you set up the narrative. The people that are spending buku bucks on advertising understand this. They understand how this PR works. And we pose this question of how do we go about generating a shared belief that there's a reality here in climate change? Well... Marshall notes that we should become far more concerned about the communicators and how trustworthy they appear. Well, we've done our best to establish trustworthiness on these, this program, and we hope we're communicating. But uh, what did Adlai Stevenson say? That's not enough. I need a majority. We've got to think about this, folks. The same opinion piece by George Marshall notes that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change 
the IPCC, plays it all rather badly. Rather than let loose its most presentable participants to tell the world how it achieves consensus on an unprecedented scale, it fails even to provide a list of the people involved in the process. It has no human face at all. The only images on its website are the palace or beach resort where it will hold its next meeting. Since people tend to put more trust in those who appear to share their values and understand their needs, it's crucial that we widen the range of voices speaking on climate change, even if this means climate experts relinquishing some control and encouraging others who are better communicators to speak for them. Well, if anyone considers us a better communicator, we are available for the job. Although I would like to jump into the New Yorker article from June 29th about James Hansen. I think I'm getting a little too angry, so let's see if we can't lighten the mood a bit by uh, going where I said we would at the top of the show, down to New Zealand. I'd like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade at this point returning back to the program is someone we had on years ago national geographic film documentarian michael bonna who was uh, a guest on two of our uh, shows in the first year and we've been meaning to have him back all this time and it's taken this long but better late than never so we say hello to new zealand and welcome back michael bonna g'day doc how you doing we're doing fine how are things down there in the winter uh, in new zealand well, actually, it springs well on the way. It's a beautiful sunny day down here at the moment, and, uh, yeah, a lot warmer than it would normally be for this time of year. So uh, uh, lapping it up, lapping it up, hopefully it's the start of a big summer for us. Well, I want to talk about uh, uh, some miscellaneous stuff, but I know you have a big upcoming event here in Atlanta, Georgia, an, ex an exhibition that will be traveling, and it has to do with uh, sharks and the ocean, and, and you've done many documentaries about exactly that. So fill us in. What's going what's gonna to open up in Atlanta next month? I think last time we talked, Doug, one of the big things, or one of the, uh, my big concerns, was the rapidly reducing numbers of sharks globally. Yes. And uh, I've always looked at ways other than documentary that uh, that perhaps I can bring about awareness and uh, and uh, get people actively involved in learning more about sharks. And this is pretty much it. It's a culmination of about three years of work. It's a it's a large exhibit that looks at every uh, facet of sharks from from the uh, from uh, early fossil records. Um, the very start, right through um, uh, to modern sharks, huge high-definition screens, um, a lot of biology information, um, and also a very in-depth look at things like galeophobia, which is our fear of sharks, <laughs> and, uh, and the impact things like jaws had, um, and, uh, and also overfishing, and the, the impact that, uh, that shark finning is having on, on the populations of sharks and our oceans uh, as a whole. I sort of think of Peter Benchley as kind of public en enemy number one in the shark world. He painted the creatures as basically malevolent and evil, and uh, I think probably caused a lot of slaughter, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And, you know, he, he was aware of that after uh, Jaws, you know, and he spent, uh, you know, pretty much the last 20 years of his life um, working towards uh, changing pe people's perceptions, um, you know, because uh, he, he very quickly became aware um, that uh, that the uh, the animal he portrayed in Jaws is very different to the to the animal in real life. Well, this exhibit's called Planet Shark. Is there yet a website up people can go to to get primed for this, or is that still a work in progress? We're still work in progress on that. It will be planetshark.org, um, and we're hoping that that should be up and running in about two weeks' time. 
the the exhibit itself will uh, the the first uh, information is just starting to come out of uh, the Georgia Aquarium, which is where where it's going to be displayed uh, for the next twelve months. Uh, that's the biggest aquarium in the world in Georgia, so uh, you know it's quite a quite a good start for us. The biggest aquarium in the world is in Georgia. It absolutely is. Wow. All right. Well, we look forward to uh, you know when when it does open, you'll have to come back and tell us how things are going. But in the meantime. Let's review a little bit about some of the work you've done. I, I know that this we've talked about it in the show with you and with other people. The world's sharks, really they really are in trouble right now. Yeah, well, a lot of populations, uh, sharks like uh, Oceanic White Tip, which was a, a shark that was prevalent in the, uh, you know, the uh, Gulf of Mexico, I mean, it's almost extinct in the Gulf of Mexico now, about a 98% drop in numbers. Things like narco sharks are down by 75% globally. It's huge. Why is that happening, Mike? Yeah, the main problem is overfishing, and, and it's not because we eat a lot of shark, because we don't. Um, the reality is a lot of those bigger sharks and the older sharks uh, have a lot, of, uh, a lot of heavy metal content in their, in their flesh, so we tend not to eat them, uh, mercury, arsenic, things like that. But what has happened is that the, uh, the increase in, uh, in shark fin demand um, from the Asian market has had a profound impact on numbers of sharks. Can we do something about that? I know people have been asked to, you know, request Chinese restaurants not to serve shark fin soup. Certainly, never order it. Is there something else we can do? Well, you know, this is about education. Um, you know, shark fin soup doesn't have any nutritional value. In fact, it has no taste. Um, and and uh, many places, including the FDA, recommend that you don't, if you're pregnant, you certainly don't consume shark fin soup because often the levels of mercury in the shark fin soup is higher than the daily recommended dose. It is. It's just about education. You know, shark fin soup for, for the Asian market used to be something that was uh, that was reserved for royalty, so it is a sign of uh, of wealth and the showing of wealth serving it. So it's really just getting out of those uh, those older stigmas and the way we used to look at things and uh, and looking at the actual value of the, the of the uh, soup and uh, and rather than uh, what we perceive it to mean. When we talked last time, you had an excellent documentary, Tuna Cowboys. It was showing how they were rounding up. The adolescent, I guess you would call them, uh, tuna, and bringing them in and then growing them closer to home so that they weren't out taking the largest uh, specimens from the sea. And I guess three years on, I have to ask you, is that is that catching on? Is that really uh, seeing a positive effect? Yeah, we, I mean, we're, we're seeing the numbers in tuna uh, of uh, southern bluefin tuna off the Australian coast have certainly increased. The, problem, the big problem, of course, is that a lot of these animals, like uh, tuna and, uh, and the biggest sharks, have huge pelagic ranges. And while a lot of countries around the world are protecting or quotering uh, fish takes within their own territorial waters, any animals that travel outside that are fair game. So what tends to happen with the, with the bluefin tuna is, while they're protected or they're, they're, the amount of fish taken in Australia is limited, um, once they travel outside of those Australian territorial waters, then they're picked on by, by the international fishermen. So while, while you can do so much within your own um, uh, areas, there's, there's not much you can do to protect them outside of that. So there's still a lot of pressure on, uh, on things like bluefin, but it tends not to be from the countries that, uh, that, uh, that are putting or have effective quota management systems. Well, do our politicians need to come to better international agreements? I mean, you know, I guess good luck with that, but it sounds like maybe they uh, are been not, not pursuing that like they should. Yeah, it's a difficult one, Doug. You know, I mean, we had the same issue with, with whales, with Japan whaling. Um, you know, these animals, are a lot of the whales that they, uh, that they hunt in the, uh, in the Southern Ocean uh, are involved in tourism operations in New Zealand and Australia and many other countries. 
So the animals they take from the, from uh, you know those Antarctic waters is having an effect on uh, on the revenue streams coming in from whale watching. Um, but because they're international waters, they're outside of our ability to protect them. Uh, so you know it's it's up to uh, you know the likes of the uh, the more radical um, groups like Greenpeace and uh, and Sea Shepherd to exert that sort of pressure in those waters. Well, I want to talk about this at much greater length, but I know uh, I, I know we will probably need a better phone connection for the future. But I know you're coming stateside, so in about four weeks. Um, let's talk more about uh, about uh, fishing and and sharks, etc. Love to, Doug. Love to. But but while I have you, I have a couple other topics I wanted to throw at you. Uh, you're down south in the southern hemisphere, like you say, spring is coming. We're very concerned here about uh, the H1N1 flu. How is it doing in New Zealand? It has. Uh, it certainly has started, and there's a, there's a lot of questions being raised here. To be honest, Doug, as to whether it's uh, something that we should stay away from, or whether it's something we should uh, we should actually get under our belts in terms of our immune system's ability to defend us. Um, it seems to have killed a lot less people than influenza kills on a on a yearly basis. Um, and but the concern is not this version of it, but a, a you know a version of it later on down the track, two or three. Um, you know, winters later, where the uh, virus has got stronger, and if we haven't any existing um, resistance to it, you know, is it is it uh, going to be more dangerous in the future? Are we better to get it now than get it later when it's become a stronger virus? And we've actually had uh, in one of the cities down here in New Zealand, people getting together and having um, swine flu parties. I've heard of this. <laughs> I, I've heard of this. Yeah. I, you know anyone that's gone to one? Uh, we've got a, got a friend down in uh, down in Christchurch who was invited to one, but he didn't actually go to it. So I assume it's a whole bunch of people standing around coughing and drinking. <laughs> from a health, from a, a medical standpoint, that does make a certain amount of sense. Well, it does. You know, it's all about creating that immune system ability to defend itself. And uh, you know, the further we we get away from uh, from the original uh, versions of the virus, and we saw that a lot in the you know, in the early days in the Pacific, where influenza killed hundreds and hundreds of thousand people when the when the first uh, when the first uh, you know explorers came down through that area so you gotta wonder you know we better to protect ourselves or we better to get it and uh, and get it over and done with all right well on, on a to radically change the subject i have to ask this one are you aware of this uh this this big hit show up here in america flight of the concords yes i am <laughs> have you had a chance to see any of them I have actually. I've seen the boys when they've been down here prior to the even before they they left to go ashore. They're they're very dry, uh, very typical New Zealand humour, uh, but yeah, they're they're pretty funny. Yeah, we're we're big fans of that, and I thought that uh, particularly the episode where he has the Australian girlfriend was hilarious because people up here they mix you guys up, Australia, New Zealand, and of course that doesn't go over yeah. very well with the Kiwis. <laughs> doesn't either. We, we like to think that uh, well, uh, when, the, when those first ships came to New Zealand and Australia, they brought the farmers and, uh, and, uh, you know, and the miners to New Zealand and they took their convicts to Australia. <laughs> so, yeah, there is, there's quite a rift between the two countries. <laughs> well, a friendly one, though. Yeah, it is. And I, I, I like you both, but I have to say that um, in a way that uh, I guess New Zealand is more like Canadians, very polite, very genteel whereas australians and americans are kind of like kind of rude and brash and sometimes a little over the top yeah well that's true we don't lock our doors and don't carry guns <laughs> <laughs> well michael it's been a, it's been good to have you back and we need to not go several years before we uh we return you to the show and, and we will not do that so when you're stateside we'll give you a call and, and we'll talk about this exhibit i know people are going to be very interested in it sounds great all right 
Anyway, Michael Bonnet will be back soon. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We got plenty more in segment three, so don't go away. Ça va, ça va, ça va. Voilà le conversation dans le parc. Où est le livre À la bibliothèque. Et la musique danse À la discothèque. Et les discothèques C'est ici, bébé.